some people get excited about a Super Bowl, we get way, way more excited about baptisms. And so this morning we have three individuals that are coming forward for baptism. And um, why, do we, why do we practice baptism as a church? We practice baptism, number one, because Jesus has commanded it. He said, go into all the world, baptizing, making disciples. And so we want to do that. But baptism is an important picture. It's important that you realize this morning that baptism does not save a person from their sins. It does not bring forgiveness, the act of baptism itself. But baptism is a picture that each of these individuals has given their life to Christ, that he is their Lord and Savior. And so today we are here to celebrate with them as they demonstrate that faith in front of our church and really in front of the world, declaring that they are Jesus's. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And we are starting with a very special individual, Ella Bush. Church family, would you welcome Ella Bush? I've asked each of them to share a short testimony of how they came to faith. And so, Ella, if you would, please share your testimony. Um, hi, as you heard, my name is Ella Bush. This past year, I have gone through rough mountains. I had wrestled with wanting to believe in God, and I just couldn't. I have been asking so many questions about why God lets bad things happen. A story that helped me believe happened at school. Every year my school has a person teaches a dance from a different culture. This year it was Peruvian. The first day of dance, I was very excited because the past years I had loved learning the dances. A few weeks later, I noticed that there were some inappropriate dance moves and I told my mom. She asked if our principal had seen the dance and I told her she had been in that room when I started to notice. I told her that we were shouting Diablo. Diablo means devil. This made me uncomfortable and made my school feel unsafe. I believe in the devil and that he's against God. I didn't want him coming into our school. The next day, my mom told my teacher that I wasn't comfortable doing the dance. She told us that I could help kindergarten on the days we had dance. That is what I did until the dance had finished. Even though I didn't like that the dance was going on, because of it, my mom got to talk to a bunch of people about Jesus. That is when I realized that God let something bad happen, but that he turned it into something good. He did the same thing on the cross. He died, but he also took all the sin in our hearts and made us clean. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is what I call love. That is when I knew no person could be that loving, kind, generous, except one, Jesus. I knew I wanted to follow Jesus. I knew I wanted him to be my Savior. I knew I wanted to restart and be clean. That's how I gave my life to Jesus, because he can turn bad into good, and that's what he did to me. Awesome, Ella. Well, Ella, it is based on that profession of faith that it is my privilege to baptize you, my sister in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a brand new life. Proud of you, girl. All right, church family, would you now welcome Ming Huang? All right, Ming, if you'll share your testimony. Hi, my name is Ming, and I grew up in San Francisco. Before I knew God, I came from a broken family, and the brokenness revealed a void in my life. To fill the void in my life, I live for luxury and define my personal worth in partying, fashion, and beauty product. 
my personal worth was wrapped up in my appearance to the point where my look made me feel like I was loved and worthy. I believe the appearance of a woman defines her, especially through the eyes of the others, and I lived for the approval of others. I felt empty, and I tried every way possible to cover up my wounds by seeking to find happiness and fulfillment from all the world could offer. I filled my life with many temporary desires that left my heart empty, no matter what I tried to fill my life with. I still felt emptiness in my heart that seemingly would never be fulfilled. Then one day, a friend named Nathan decided to share the gospel with me. Little by little, he shared the gospel. Uh, he interpreted the meaning, <clears throat> its meaning to me. I didn't fully understand what it all meant, but I listened. A week later, Nathan gave me a very nice letter-covered Bible and a journal as a gift. Personally, I love journaling, and I thought it was such a thoughtful gift. So I figured I would read the Bible just to be nice. So I started in the book of Matthew and read until chapter 19, where Jesus is talking about marriage, and verse 6 stood out to me. Matthew chapter 19, verse 6 says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. I thought that verse was beautiful, and it broke me, and I burst into tears. Marriages will always end up in pain, and God's word filled my heart, and I burst into tears. In this moment, I fell in love with Jesus. I couldn't stop reading the truth and the laws that he was preaching. Through Jesus, I found joy. To me, happiness is when you receive a Christmas present, but joy is unconditional peace, security, and everlasting fulfillment. I come to find Jesus' words are wise, and he knows what's best for me. Jesus is God, and all things are made for him and through him. That emptiness in my heart, the separation from God, was fulfilled in my relationship with Jesus. Creation loses its purpose without its creator, like a music box without a winder key. And I found my creator, and he gives me purpose. It's been a two-month journey with Christ, and it has been the happiest two months of my life. The moment I was saved, I became alive. The truth of the gospel gave me fulfillment, purpose, and everlasting joy that only comes from our creator. May God turn many hearts by my testimony today, and may he open the eye of your heart and realize that he is the answer to all things. Thank you, May. Awesome. Ming, it is based on the profession that you just made that it is my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a brand new life. These testimonies are powerful, aren't they? It's awesome. Finally, we have Lynn Cricket. Church family, would you welcome her today? All right, Lynn, if you'd share your testimony. Jesus is Lord God, Christ my Savior. At a very young age, my dad introduced me to him after waking up from a really bad nightmare. 
As a teenager, I understood more about him. I realized that I needed to be saved from my sin and that only Jesus' death on the cross could bring the forgiveness I needed. At that time, Jesus became Lord of my life, but I didn't have the opportunity to be baptized to publicly declare my faith. Since then, I've always had Jesus living with me, and he knows how much I love him and how thankful I am that he walks with me daily. No matter what bad dream or nightmare I face, I know he is with me and his righteousness brings truth through me today. I'm being baptized today to tell the world I am his. Thank you, Lord God, for your many blessings. Thank you, Lynn. It's based on that profession of faith that it is my privilege to baptize you, my sister in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a brand new life. All right, church family, as we continue in worship, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your salvation. We're so thankful for your grace that comes and changes our lives. I thank you for these three testimonies that we've heard and the lives that they represent. Lord, we pray for each of these women, Lord, that you would cause them not only to um, understand your salvation, but help them to grow. I pray that we as a church would be a family that, that helps them in that growth process, that they know more and more of who you are and what you've done, and that they treasure you more. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room as they see these testimonies, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that you can change their life as well. You're a God who changes us, and so we're grateful for you today, and we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Our reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. 
you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the grace of a new day. God, grateful as always that, that there's not one of us in this room by chance, that you have brought each of us here to this place for a specific purpose this morning. And um, God, it's my prayer that you would soften hearts in this room to hear what you would have for them. God, we are so, um, I'm so thankful for the testimonies of these three that were baptized this morning. Your word in Revelation says that the enemy is destroyed by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. And God, it was so powerful and we're so grateful for the evidence that you radically change lives. God, I pray as we get into your word this morning, as we continue in this uh, first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of the beginnings, the book of our origins, God, I pray that we would see you in it. And God, for the person in this room, I specifically pray this this morning, for the person in this room who doesn't know you, who is where each of these three who were baptized, where each one of us who know you was at some point in our life where we were hard-hearted towards you or where we were hesitant to surrender to you. God, I pray that you would break through that heart this morning. God, I pray for changed lives. I pray that not one of us, whether we know you or not, would leave this place unchanged this morning. God, I pray for every church in this city that is true to your word, that preaches the gospel, that teaches the truth of your word. As they do what we are doing this morning in this city, I pray for great fruit to come from each of those churches. I pray that those churches would be filled with your spirit this morning and that this city would be changed as your people go out into this world that you have placed us in and share the good news that we know. And I pray that each of us would be as open and honest with our testimonies of life change as these three were this morning. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. How is everybody? How's everybody? Okay. You don't have to say great, but I just want to hear from you. My name is Mike Geke. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we are in our fifth week of the study of the book of Genesis. We're in our fifth week, but we're only on chapter four because we spent two weeks in chapter one, in case you're wondering. Um, I'm excited to get into this book. Thank you, Andrew, for reading our text this morning. 
Um, doesn't it just sound so much more powerful with that accent? It's awesome. I might or might not have picked him just for that. So, but thank you. Um, it is a powerful text. I was thinking about this particular text, though, as I've spent time studying it in a, in a way maybe that's different than I've ever studied it before to uh, prepare to teach it this morning, teach from it this morning. I was thinking about one of the, this, this uh, reality of those of us who preach. A uh, text, and Ryan has experienced this, and, and anyone who stood on this stage has experienced this. So we get into a text, and, and when we, we spend time preparing these sermons, we, we get in there, we, we study the text, but we also ask the Lord just to give us discernment. What is it from this text that, that you would have for your people? in the church on the particular morning that we're preaching. And then, then we try to craft a sermon, and in our sermon we, use, we try to use some illustrations, we try to use personal stories, all designed to enhance what we are teaching from the Word to, to help whatever we believe God is leading us to share for that point just to get across to you, for you to hear it. And so often, I mean, occasionally someone will come up to me and they will have actually gotten the point of the sermon, They'll actually come up and say, wow, that thing that you shared from the word, that really impacted me. That, that helped me see things in a different way. But you know what happens very often? People come up from after a sermon and the thing they want to talk about is the personal story you shared or your illustration. I would bet that most of you remember a lot more about my family that I might have shared from this stage than actual sermon points that I might have made. It's just a reality. And the truth is, those things are part of the sermon, but very rarely are the illustrations or the funny stories we tell, very rarely is that represent the heart of the sermon. And I think it's the same way with the story of Cain and Abel. I think if I said, <coughs> Peter, would you go get me a cup of water, please? Sorry, thank you, this is my son. So. <laughs> He's a good boy. <laughs> I think that with this story of Cain and Abel, if I said Cain and Abel, if, if you knew we were studying Genesis 4 today, you knew we were going to be studying Cain and Abel, you might instantly think of sibling rivalry. In fact, this week when I mentioned what I was studying on to someone up here, they said, oh, sibling rivalry. That's, an, that's what they think of initially. Or they might think it's just about a brotherly relationship between Cain and Abel. <coughs> Excuse me. Or they might think that it is about murder or about anger or whatever. And I think that those things are part of the story of Cain and Abel, but I do not think those things are the heart of this story of Cain and Abel. And what I hope we will do today is to pull back a little bit <coughs> and to dig in a little bit more about what God would have for us out of here beyond the, the parts of the story that seem to <coughs> jump out at us. I'm sorry. <coughs> Where's that boy? <coughs> oh, well, thank you, Judy. Now my son is going to be really embarrassed to walk back in here. He's probably hiding out in the lobby. I think it's, it's so interesting. I mean, I've never really thought about this so much before as I did preparing for this sermon. But just to think about the context of this whole story in the beginning. I mean, it was just Adam and Eve. She was the first woman to be pregnant. 
We don't know how long it took before what was studied last week, the, the chapter 3, the fall. We don't really know how long it was between chapter 3 and, and, and this birth that we see of Cain. But she was the first woman to ever get pregnant. Just, you women think about that. There was no what to expect when you're expecting. <laughs> there were no birthing classes at the hospital. There was no target to go and to make a registry or to pick out all the things you need for your baby. There were no experienced moms to give you a lot of unwanted and possibly unhelpful advice. <laughs> Just think, this was the first baby. They'd never seen a baby before. There were no diapers. And I wonder how long it took before they figured out that they would need something to hold all that stuff in. I mean, this had to have been just this, I mean, it's just almost hard to wrap your head around. Eve, Eve didn't know much at this time. But she did know what she did know directly from God. He spoke to them. We saw it last week in chapter 3. We saw it throughout this story. We see that God spoke directly to people at this time, verbally, audibly spoke to them. Um, we see it, him speaking to Cain later in this chapter. There were no prophets. There were no teachers. All she knew was what God chose to tell her. But she also knew life before the fall. She knew life before she and Adam ate of that apple that we read about in chapter 3. She knew what it was like to experience perfect peace. She knew what it was like to experience perfect intimacy, perfect connection with God. She knew the joy of nakedness. And when it says that, when, when I say the joy of nakedness, I don't mean the joy like some people in San Francisco seem to feel or experience on su sunny afternoons. When it says that they were naked and unashamed, what it means is they, they experienced the joy of absolute, complete openness. Life without fear. Life without risk. The word vulnerable would not have even been a word that could have been said because vulnerability carries with it risk, but there was no risk. She knew what it was like to be absolutely free. She knew what it was like to live in perfect harmony with nature. Perfect harmony with Adam. Perfect harmony with God. She knew what it was like before. And she stood there, as Dr. Melick taught last week, she stood there, as we read about in chapter 3, she stood there as God laid out the reality of a hard, new, post-sin life. But she also heard, she heard God say that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. She heard a word of hope. Now remember, Eve had none of the context that we now have. She didn't understand this, the idea of timing that we have. We don't know that she knew anything about a Messiah or a Savior or Jesus or anything like that. There is a good thought, that, a good chance that she might have thought that this boy, her first offspring, would be that offspring. That he would be the one who crushed the serpent's head. He would be the one to help reinstate the harmony that she had known and the harmony she likely very missed very much. She probably had great hopes for this son, Cain, her firstborn. Think about the pressure of Cain, the first firstborn ever. 
the pressure of a firstborn to the power of 10. He was the first man born ever. And think about how that must have put pressure on him to please his parents, to earn their approval. Everything that we know about firstborns, and I am one, and I have one, would have been his. He probably was a little rigid, a rule follower, a little stubborn, maybe a little controlling, maybe seriously anal retentive. But then after Cain comes cute little Abel. Abel comes and he takes this attention away from Cain and he creates this opportunity for the first instance of brotherly competition and jealousy. Cain, as any good firstborn would do, he joins his father out in the field. He works the ground. It was a hard job. God said in Genesis 3.17 that the ground was going to be cursed because of sin, that eating from it would be painful, hard work. Abel, on the other hand, tended sheep. Cain had to prepare the fields, he had to sow the seed, he had to deal with bugs and weeds, he had to harvest. Cain walked some sheep out into a field and they ate what the grass that was there that was already growing. Probably an easier job. But they both did their jobs. And then in verse 3 of chapter 4, we see that in the course of time, it says, in the course of time, Cain and Abel both brought God an offering. So let's think about that for a minute. Clearly, Cain and Abel had some knowledge and understanding about God. They, they might have heard about God and who God was from, from their parents, Adam and Eve. We can see at the beginning of verse 4 that, that Eve is continuing to have a connection with God. She sees God's help in helping her to bear this son. He could have, they could have known about God directly from God himself, but they knew enough to know that there was a certain time, a appointed time that they were to bring an offering. All the laws about offering and sacrifice that we know and that we, will, we, we know of from God's word, all that comes later in the history of man and the history of man's relationship to God. But God must have set something up for this offering because they, the boys knew to make it. And they make their offerings and then their offerings are described kind of curiously. Cain's offering is barely described. It, says he, it just says he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground in verse 3. But Abel's offering is described in detail in verse 4. It was the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So we don't know what rules were in place for these offerings. And it's, it's curious, really, that we aren't given more information on that. And there is a whole lot of scholarly speculation surrounding these offerings themselves. But this morning, I just want to look at what we do know from what God chose to tell us. And here's what we know. God was pleased with Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his offering. Genesis 4.4 says that God had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard What do you notice in that? It wasn't just the offering. It was about regard for Abel and Cain as men also. It says God had regard for Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his offering. We can see references to this story in other places in Scripture. In Hebrews 11.4, it references this story, and it says this. By faith, by faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So because we see that in Scripture, we also know that Abel's offering was offered in faith, different 
than Cain's offering somehow. When it says that it was offered in faith, that is a very significant phrase because the idea of something being in faith means that Abel had an understanding in his heart about who God was. And it means that as part of faith, there's at least a very rudimentary level of trust that Abel had in God. We see that as part of faith, there was an element of submission to God. All of those things are part of what it means to do something in faith. That means that when he gave his offering, it was an act of worship for him. And that distinction in Hebrews 11 and the distinction in how it's described here in Genesis 4, what that shows us is that there was some sort of heart issue with Cain. It was not so much about what Cain was offering to God in his hands. It was about what Cain was offering to God in his heart. And this isn't just conjecture because we see evidence of Cain's heart. Cain's heart reveals itself in the words and the comments and the actions that we see later in this chapter. God was not primarily concerned with the offering itself. He was concerned with the heart of the person who gave it. So the first thing that I believe is the heart of this story is this. God's heart is for our hearts. It is not our motions he is after, it is our motivations that he is after. God has a very clear disdain for vain circumstances, uh, vain sacrifices. We see it over and over. This may be the first time we see it, but we see it over and over in Scripture. He is not interested in our sacrificial actions. He is not interested in the offerings we bring him if we bring them with a heart that is hard towards him, a heart that is full of sin or hypocrisy or a heart that is more concerned with what the offering may get us or one that is bitter at having to give an offering at all. He says it strongly. We, we see this disdain that God has for vain sacrifices strongly in Isaiah. We see it in Isaiah 1. Um, really verse 11 through 17, but a couple of these descriptions. In verse 11, he says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And then he says, wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. In Isaiah 64, 6, he says that our righteous deeds, our good works, our offering, he says, are like polluted garments to him. They are like filthy rags to him when those deeds, it says in verse 5 of that chapter, when those deeds come out of angry, sin-filled hearts. The deeds are not the focus. The heart is the focus. We see a similar idea in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Jesus says, if you're coming to my altar and you are bringing an offering and there is some conflict between you and someone else, he says, go and deal with the conflict before you leave your offering. If he was concerned about the offering, you know what he would have said? Go ahead and leave your offering and then deal with this problem going on. He didn't care about that. He cares about the heart. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says that we should give cheerfully. We should never give under compulsion. This story in Genesis 4 behooves us to answer this question. Where is your heart? I have to ask this question. Where is my heart 
in service, or in giving? Are you keeping some sort of of ledger in your mind that makes you think that maybe you are earning something or maybe you are avoiding something by giving God an offering, by serving him? Do you give and and then expect recognition for your gift? Do you judge your service or your offering against someone else's service or their offering? Have you ever been in a church setting and seen people getting favor in the church and think to yourself, why does he or she get all that attention? I do a lot more than they do. I think we are all probably here at some point. There are people in this room that I know are here because you have made these kind of comments to me. I promise not to make eye contact. But if I look deep into my own heart, I have to, I have to see, and I have seen as I study this, I have, this is me so often. This isn't a, a story about sibling rivalry. This is the first time we see God telling us that he wants our hearts. This is what this story is about because God desires our whole undivided heart. That is what salvation is. I met with a girl this week, a little girl, and we were talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And I asked her, I said, what does it mean to you to follow Jesus? She says, it means I make Jesus the center of my life. He cares about this. This is what he wants. So many other religions are all about the actions. Could care less about the heart. He wants actions to flow out of a heart that is surrendered and committed to him. But this story is about a little more than that. A lot more than that. It also is is this realization that he knows that our hearts apart from him, our hearts divided in allegiance between him and something else put us at risk. And that's the second part of this story. In the beginning, God knew that our hearts were at risk. And he knew that sin crouches at the door of hard hearts. In this story, Cain is instantly angry. And we're, we're not sure. He could be angry at Abel. He could be angry at God. He's probably a little bit angry at both. I totally get this. When I was younger, I had an ongoing, pretty much constant level of anger at my own little brother. He was the perfect kid. He was super cute. He was super smart. He was a good athlete. He was the baby of the family, which made him a great peacemaker. And peacemakers are very likable. I felt my whole life that all eyes were always on his perfect little blonde head. (laughs) That he could do no wrong. That my parents were more delighted in him than they were in me. You know what? None of that was true. But I was very much a cane, even to the point where I deliberately hurt him at times. I pushed him out of a tree. I pulled him off a kitchen counter by his feet. I'm not proud of that. He did nothing to me. He was not even a pest. But in my thinking, my brother was a threat to my own value and my own worth. The story of Cain and Abel might on the surface be about anger resulting in murder, but if we just see it in those, those, those hard lines, we are reading the story too narrowly and we might miss the sin that is crouching at our own doors. Anger very often has its roots in a lot of other sins or struggles. 
Roots of jealousy, roots of envy, roots of pride, roots of hatred, roots of fear of rejection. The other day, I've been reading this, I was very sensitive to it. The other day, I was in a texting thing with some, peop- some of my friends from here at church, and somebody, ca- somebody outside of this church was brought up, and, and I started speaking ill of that person in the text. And I was firing some zingers. I, I'm good. I'm good at, at sarcasm. And, and I, I mean, I was like going one after the other. My, my mind was being filled with horrible things that I could say about this person. And I stopped in the middle of it. And I realized I'm being Cain. I was angry because I was really jealous of this other person's achievements. And anger born of jealousy resulted in my sinful words. I've seen often in my years of ministry this, the, the power of a sense of entitlement, the anger that a sense of entitlement can spur at God. Sometimes people question God's actions in their lives or they question the actions of God in someone else's life by saying things like, I deserve better than what God has given me. I deserve what God is giving someone else. I've done all the right things. I didn't have sex before I got married. I don't watch our movies. I don't smoke or drink. I serve in the mint, uh, nursery. I compost. <laughs> but so often the root of those comments are the same root that was in Cain. I work hard. I gave the offering you told me to give. I deserve what Abel is giving. God doesn't chastise Cain, though, for the fault in his offering. He jumps in with the warning designed to protect Cain's heart. In verse 6, God warns Cain to guard his anger, lest his anger turns to sin. Then he tells Cain something that should scare all of us. He says, sin wants to rule over you. He says, sin is crouching at the door. It's real similar imagery to, the, to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion prowling around just ready to devour us. These are strong descriptive warnings against sin. They are not designed to limit us. So often we look at God's warnings and we think they are trying to hold us back. These warnings are not designed to limit us. They are to protect us from all the damage that comes from sin. Anger, jealousy, envy, resentfulness, all of these things that are left unchecked can steal joy and they can destroy a life. Hebrews 12 says that if you let bitterness take root, it will cause much trouble and it says it will defile many. James 1.14 says that God doesn't tempt us. It says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is exactly what ends up happening. It is exactly and literally what happened in this story. God gives Cain a way out. He gives him a path forward, free from the devastation of sin. He warns him of sin, but Cain's heart remains hard and cold. He, he, his refusal, he refuses this chance to give God his anger and to heal. He held it instead and he fed it. And we can look at Cain and go, oh, that's terrible. But how many times is God gracious with us just like he was with Cain in this story? He warns us to be careful. 
He warns us that we are dabbling in something that has potential to cause great damage, has potential to rule over us. He is warning us that sin is crouching at the door. It can be all kinds of things. He can be warning us when we're facing that urge to gossip, when we're facing the urge to complain, when we're facing the urge to manipulate, when we're facing the urge to engage in sexual sin or to numb our pain or anger or to feed our pain and anger with alcohol or drugs. And so often we are just like Cain. We ignore the warning only to fall right into the sin that was waiting to pounce on us. Cain did not heed the warning and his anger led to the murder of Abel. Abel. I went to Abel Junior High School, so I always want to say Abel. Abel. The first death in human history. And it was not a sweet death of old age. It was not an accident. It was not an act of God. It was murder. It was murder committed by the first man born of a woman. And it takes place just four chapters into God's account of the history of man. And God confronts Cain and he says, where is Abel your brother? And Cain answers smugly and coldly, I don't know. Is he my problem? Am I my brother's keeper? But God shows great mercy to Cain. He doesn't strike him dead, as he surely could have. He instead sends him into exile. And instead of repenting and thanking God for sparing his life, Cain says, the punishment is too great to bear. And I was first, I was like, really? You just killed a guy? And you're upset about this? But I realized something as you read on. He's not just lamenting that, his, that he's being exiled. He realizes, it says in verse 14, he is lamenting that from your face I shall be hidden. He's lamenting the reality of the of fear of disconnection from God. And he's clearly fear of some sort of retaliation happening at the hands of man. And God again is gracious. He protects Cain's life. He says in verse 15, he puts a mark on Cain to protect him. And then Cain, it says in verse 16, he leaves the presence of the Lord and he settles east of Eden in the land of Nod. And I think that is an incredibly sad sentence. The story of Cain is not unique. It's not unique in God's word. We see it over and over. We see vain sacrifices, heartless sacrifices. Jesus, remember him calling out the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're all scrubbed clean on the outside, but inwardly you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Over and over in scripture, we see rejection of the merciful calling of God. We see rejection of the merciful instructions of God. We see Rejection of the merciful warnings of God. And we see anger and we see hatred and we see self-absorption and we see lust. And we see it played out and the devastating impact of all of that played out in Scripture. But we also see it playing out in our headlines today. We see a culture of death that intentionally takes the lives of unborn babies. Where people kill all over the place just indiscriminately. They have no regard for human life, shootings and other killings. We see it over and over, stories of really unconscionable acts of violence, unconscionable acts of hatred. We see a heartlessness towards orphans and widows and elderly and poor and refugees. We see it out there, we also see it in here sometimes. 
We see it in the evil of racism. We see it in the ugly discourse between people who have different beliefs and different ideas and different values. We see it in sexual expression that has no boundaries. We see it in the prevalence of drug and alcohol abuse and addiction. And we see it played out, not just in the world, but we see it played out on a smaller scale in our own lives. We see it in our jealousies. We see it in our selfishness and we see it in our self-absorption. We see it in our hatred. We see it in our divisions, our sense of entitlement, our pursuit of pleasure, our quest for revenge, the bitterness that so easily takes root, the personal seeking we have for personal justice, the fighting that we do for our own rights. This story is nothing new. The ugliness of the world we live in today was there in the beginning. But God loved us in the beginning. God had a plan for us in the beginning. I heard someone once say that the Bible's not really a book of heroes. It is a book of failures and a book about one hero, Jesus. The hero who saved us. The hero who would ultimately crush Satan's head and ultimately will complete the restoration that God promised in Genesis 3. I want to show you a little bit what I saw about this hero from this passage last week. Look at this verse for me in Genesis 4. It's verse 10. It should be on your screen. God is confronting Cain about the murder of Abel, and he says this, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood in the ground, his, his blood cried out for justice. His blood cried out for vengeance. His blood cried out for revenge. His blood cried out for punishment. Abel's blood cried out words that highlight the brokenness of our world both then and now. Abel's blood cried out words that showcase that brokenness that came into the world with the sin of Adam and Eve. And we spend so much time spinning our wheels trying to fix what is broken. But our human efforts, only they're not only futile, they not only just don't work, but they lead simply to more people being devoured by the sin that is crouching at the door of fallen humanity. But there is hope. So last year, this, the staff, we always pick a, a passage of the Bible to memorize each year. Last year, we memorized Hebrews 12. And as I read Genesis 4, and I read about this cry of Abel's blood from the, the land in verse uh, 10, I was reminded of a powerful and I believe an incredibly beautiful verse that's in Hebrews 12 that speaks directly to the contrast between the voice of Abel's blood crying from the ground and the voice of hope that we have in Jesus. In Hebrews 12, starting in about verse 18, the writer of Hebrews is um, speaking to the difference about what was, about the old covenant, and, and what now is in Christ, about the new covenant. He's talking about the kingdom of Christ. And he says this. He says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, he says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How powerful is that passage? Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the sprinkled blood of Jesus. Jesus, who is our mediator between us and God, who is our means of access to God. Jesus, who is the offspring who crushed the serpent's head. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Abel's blood cries out for justice. But Jesus' blood cries out, you are justified. That means it pardons us from our sin and makes us righteous. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, but Jesus' blood speaks a word of forgiveness. Abel's blood seeks revenge, but Jesus' blood speaks redemption. Abel's blood cried out for punishment. Jesus' blood extends mercy and unmerited favor or grace. Abel made the first, made an offering of the first fruits of his livestock, and he was murdered as a result for nothing. But Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, made an offering of himself, and he died willingly for us. Victory over the serpent came in the form of a cross. Death was defeated, and those who surrender their lives to Jesus receive an eternal mark that doesn't compel us away from God's presence like it did Cain, but an eternal mark that ensures an eternity in God's presence. Through the cross, through salvation, which means through our surrendered hearts to God, we receive forgiveness and redemption and new life. We receive new freedoms and new purpose. We, we receive power. We receive a new identity. And we receive so many more words that defeat the sin that is crouching at our doors. We are such beautiful examples of, of the better words of the blood of Jesus and the testimonies we heard at baptism this morning. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a love that can destroy our own Cain-like tendencies. Our tendencies to go through religious motions with hearts that aren't of faith but are full of self. Jesus offered the sacrifice we could never give and in that he changes our hearts. Through Jesus we are no longer enemies of God. but We are sons and daughters of the king. We are not banished to the land of Nod. We are welcomed to the kingdom of God and to his throne of grace. So here's the question for us today. Every one of us has to ask this question. Am I Cain? Am I hard? Am I angry? Am I entitled? Am I selfish? Am I prideful? God comes today with mercy. He's offering us his joy and a new heart and salvation, and he's offering us a warning about sin. And we need to look at that warning and say, will I heed the warning or will we stay hardened? Sin is real, and it will rule over us, and it will devour us. Jesus speaks a better word than any word that sin promises us. We do not have to be enslaved to a life living with the heart of Cain. We do not have to spend our lives trying to solve the world's problems or fix our own circumstances with the words of the blood of Abel. We acknowledge we are broken and our world is broken, but only the better word spoken by the blood of Jesus will ever change our world. And that better word resides in here. Until Jesus returns, brokenness is going to remain in the world. We, we can't be surprised by that. We shouldn't ever be surprised by what we see but there's also a truth that little bits of Eden are possible right here and right now 
as Christ inhabits the hearts of his people. And as we do what those three people did this morning in sharing what Jesus has done to them and who he is. Little bits of Eden are, are possible right here in this city as we, those of us who, whose hearts are inhabited by Christ, as we take that hope out into the world. The serpent-crushing work of Jesus will someday be fully realized, but we can be a part of what Jesus is doing now. Like the writer of Hebrews told us, we have come now to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to spend some time this morning just taking a minute a minute of quiet, I don't want any music playing, I want us to be alone with our thoughts. I would just spend some time for all of us just to think, where is sin crouching at my door? Is my hard heart, is my hard heart hard? One of the things that I think is so true is that sometimes the longer we can be in church, the easier it is for us to have this idea that I deserve something for what I do for God. That what I'm doing is not about worship, it is not about surrender, it is not born out of a heart that has been changed, but I'm going through religious motions to get something out of it for myself or to earn something from God. I want to encourage you in this time, think about that. Think about where sin is crouching at your door. Where are you angry? Where are you jealous? Where are you resentful? Where are you lured and tempted by something that, that you know God is telling you? brings with it great risk. Where do you need to take that warning and take what you're struggling with to God and to receive the better word of the sprinkled blood of Jesus?